these modern uh, ideas are not in fact just modern. We can find them in the ancient church. Early in the first century and second century, the first major grouping of heresies, it wasn't just one heresy, the whole mess of heresies, that we label as Gnosticism, uh, doesn't like, did, they didn't like material things, physical things, and so they don't like bodies. And so what in the world, they said, would Jesus do carrying a body up into heaven? Now, that's no place for a body. You want to get rid of the body. And so uh, some Gnostics suggested that as he went up, if he even had a true body, which some of them uh, denied even that, that he somehow shed it, that it dissolved in the atmosphere as he goes up, that he somehow evaporated. Um, and later, this similar idea would, would come up amongst a similar wacko group known as the Manichaeans. And these were Augustine later, in the, at the beginning, at the early end of the fourth century, would encounter these guys. Um, and they said that he took off his body and laid it up in the sun. Okay? You could tell these guys were influenced by some pretty crazy uh, mythologies that they were mixing with Christianity. Well, to these and all such ideas, the church adamantly said from the very beginning, no, absolutely not. Christ ascended in possession, in, in, into heaven, possessing the fullness of his humanity. And that's essential for our salvation. It's essential, if we're going to be saved, that we understand that he ascended with his full humanity, body and soul, intact. Right now, he sits at the Father's right hand, having taken nothing off that he took from us. All of us, that is all of our nature, body and soul, is there present in the presence of God the Father. It was a bodily ascension. Secondly, the ascension was... Yes? You commented all about the distinction of the resurrection body. That's tricky. The best way I think of it is, is that the, ascent, the resurrection and the... Actually, you could say the victory over hell and the resurrection and the ascension could best be thought of as a single event in three stages. And it, it's tricky to try to tease out, uh, you know, what's the difference between... Obviously, a change had taken place in his body in the resurrection... Uh, but the church also speaks of a glorification, that we're going to get to that in a minute, in his ascension as well. And so we could just best be kind of just collapse those two together. In fact, I think sometimes the New Testament may even use the term raised as a, in a more ample way to include both the resurrection and the ascension. Because it's his being raised from the lowest place in hell to the highest place in the highest heavens, even though it took 40 days to go through that process. They do collapse the words all Yes, exaltation. his exaltation would be the word used for that, for that overall uh, movement. That's a good question, because we know he walks through doors and things like that. Uh, it's, a it's a little different, yes. Um, so the second point is that the ascension was visible. It was public. The disciples witnessed it with their own eyes. He didn't just disappear one day and then the disciples you know, conjured up a story about him going up into heaven to explain it. At least 11 men, and perhaps it was more, but at least 11 men were eyewitnesses to his body, him, alive, his body, being taken up from the earth and going upwards and ascending until, with their necks up stretched like this, they lost sight of him in the clouds. Nobody witnessed the incarnation. We're about to think about the incarnation. Nobody actually saw that happen. Now, we know it happened because we saw the effects, right? But no one saw 
the word to send him to the womb of the Virgin Mary. Nobody witnessed the resurrection either. Now hundreds witnessed its effect, so they knew it had taken place. They saw Jesus alive, and they knew that he had been dead. They had seen him dead, and now they see him alive. There's no question that he had been raised, but they never saw that moment in which the dead body actually comes to life, and he stands up in the tomb. But the ascension, that's public. That's witness. There's nothing secret here. In fact, it says that uh, he was taken up in quite an open display. He ascended, we're told, in splendor. There was light involved, in brightness, in glory. It was an awesome sight to behold. <clears throat> and that's why the angels, the two men dressed in white in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, tell us that Jesus will come by. He says, why are you staring up into heaven? Jesus, the same Jesus, will come back again in the same manner in which you saw him go up. That is, in the flesh, visibly, publicly, and in great glory. So there's a strong connection between the, the manner of his ascent and the manner <coughs> of his coming future descent, his future return. After they saw the ascension, the, the pieces fell together in the disciples' minds. And as a group, the book of Luke tells us, they fell on their faces and they worshipped. They worshipped Jesus for the very first time. Now, a single, you know, individual here and there had done that already. But this is the first time that the disciples as a group worshipped Jesus. Because now they get it. Even after the resurrection, they didn't quite put the pieces together. They couldn't quite figure out what was going on. It was bewildering. But when they saw the ascension, it all came together. And they returned to Jerusalem, not bewildered, not trying to figure out what, what, what in the world's going on, but full of joy and ecstatic in their new faith. The ascension was electrifying to the early church. So it's visible. Now, thirdly, the ascension was a movement from one locale to another. This is what we call a local movement. Now, the word local just means it has to do with location. It was a change of location from heaven, or excuse me, from earth to not only heaven, but the highest heavens, because, of course, there are, there's more than one, if you will. Now, there are some, in fact, many, who would deny this. Uh, they think that this notion that heaven is up there and earth down here and hell even further down, this is pre-modern and uh, medieval, and we know better now the Copernican Revolution. we got telescopes and satellites, and we can see, you know, we're just a speck in the solar system, and the solar system is a speck in the galaxy, and no matter how far out we look, there's no place that we can think of as heaven or up there that's above us, and so we should set this whole notion aside. And so when Jesus goes up, well, that was a metaphor for um, a change, a, 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 for a change in his condition. Something changed, but it wasn't location, really, because there's no place to which he needs to move. Now, again, this is something that you encounter, but I would argue that this cannot, in fact, be true, what they say. And that is because a body has to be in one place at one time. It's part of the attributes, the properties of a body. Location. If Christ is no longer walking amongst us, he must have moved a new location because he has to be somewhere now of course he is both God and man right as God he is everywhere 
and it always has been everywhere. Even when he walked this earth, in his divine nature, he was omnipresent, even still in heaven. But as man, he has a body that has to be in a place. If it's not here, it must be somewhere else. And we may not know where that somewhere else is. We certainly don't know how to get there or where to find it. But there is no escaping the fact that by visibly ascending upwards into the clouds and by telling us that he's going to come back down from the clouds to where we are, that it's God's purpose that we should think of his present location as up there, as above us. So wherever it actually is, and that's not part of what we need to know, wherever it actually is, God wants us to think of it as up there, above us, and that's enough for us. So it was local. But the ascension was not only local. Those people who were objecting, they were on to something. It was more, certainly, than a change of location. It was also a change, a radical change of condition. Now, first of all, there is a change with respect to him as the Word, the Divine Son. When the Word became flesh, he laid aside his glory. Now, this isn't a change to his being, to his nature. The divine nature cannot change. But it's a change in his condition, in his experience, in some way. In some way, he laid aside his glory, and now he is reclothing himself in that glory. When he came down to us, he emptied himself, the scripture says. Again, that's not a change in his nature, but it is a change of some kind, in his condition in some way. He emptied himself, and now he takes back everything that he had set aside. Perhaps, uh, one of the 4th century theologians suggested that in the Incarnation there was even a kind of interruption in the experience, I'm using my words very carefully now, in the experience of the unity of the Godhead, not the essence of the Godhead, but the experience of that unity. As the Word voluntarily restrained the consciousness and enjoyment of that unity so that he can fully identify with us in our loneliness. And if that's the case, then now... The word is being reinstated in that unity, in the fullness of that experience of that unity that he always had with the Father, but it's somehow been interrupted. So as God, it's a return to what he already had before, that he had momentarily laid aside. But Christ is not just God. And this is where it gets really fun for us. He's also man. And as man, it's not a return. It's a promotion. Because his human nature is forever and inextricably bound to his deity, whatever happens to the divine word happens to the man. The human creature that he assumed and clothes himself with can never be separated from the only begotten son. And so whatever glory comes back upon this only begotten son comes upon the man as well. One person two natures. So when God, so when as God, he re-enters his glory, as man, he enters that same glory also, but for the very first time. And while as God, he cannot possibly be exalted higher than he was already by nature, as man, he can be. And he merits it. He deserves to be after the obedience that he demonstrated in his life and death. 
So while in his humanity he had been made a little lower than the angels, which is what we are, by the way, that's our ranking in God's ontology, we are a little lower than the angels as men and women. That same man, that same blessed human nature now becomes better than the angels. Hebrews tells us he obtained an inheritance higher than they, that he's given a more excellent name than they. He passes them in his humanity, in his deity, he doesn't need to pass them, he's already above them. But in his humanity, he passes by the angelic rank and becomes their superior. No angel can sit at God's right hand. That's not a place for angels. No archangel can sit with the, king, with the uh, authority and kingdom that belongs to God alone set upon his shoulders. Do you know who does? Do you know who does sit there? A man. Not an angel. Not an archangel. Or cherub or seraph. A man. A man has been seated in a throne that belongs to deity. And again, there's two reasons, because the humanity is joined to the deity of the word, and so he goes where the word goes, but also because the humanity has merited this. So it's both and. He sits now where God sits. He rules as God rules. And he is now worshipped as God is worshipped. Even the worship that is due to the creator alone comes upon this Creature, that is, the human nature that is assumed and taken up and joined to the divine word. He receives our worship. While still fully human, he's not superhuman, he's still human. Well, he's not, I'll just say he's, he's human, he's not other than human. And yet, the human attributes of lowliness and servanthood are laid aside, and for the first time in the history of the world, Humanity is no longer weak, but clothed with lordship. Peter says that after God raised him from the dead, he made him to be both Lord and Christ. Now, the church, early church was very quick to say, well, that doesn't mean that this is the first time that he was the Lord or the Christ. They like to use the word Christ even for his pre-incarnate state. That was something the early church did a lot. So they wanted to say, well, he didn't make him that, uh, but... The more nuanced theologians realized that actually, in a certain kind of way, he did. As God, he had always been Lord. Nothing, that could not become, that couldn't be something new. But as man, that's something new. As man, upon his ascension, he becomes Lord. He is constituted Lord, is pronounced the Son in the fullest sense. And that idea of sonship includes notions of being installed as king and being his vice-regent over his people and all kinds of other ideas. And he is crowned and seated in the divine throne as a reward for his astonishing and faithful obedience to the Father. Uh, one of the church fathers called this the, enthro the enthronization. I guess enthronement would be a better word. The enthronement of the manhood of our Lord Jesus. So that's what we mean by the Lord's ascension and session. Now we ask the question that we all want to, to think about, and that is, what does that mean for us? Everything we've been talking about in this class is about the economy, the working out of our salvation. And so we want to know, does this also contribute to our salvation? And I guess you could probably guess what my answer is going to be. <laughs> Absolutely it does. 
The cross is not the end of the story. Not even the resurrection is the end of the story. We are saved as well by his ascension and his sitting at God's right hand. So, how so? Okay, well, there are many ways. Now, as I put together the way, mostly, and by the way, this isn't a topic that the fathers mention this, it comes up, and especially in their ascension homilies. Uh, this isn't a topic that they debated a lot because there was never really many serious heresies. They didn't ever, they didn't spend time with the Manichaeans and the Gnostics too much. Uh, but there were, this was not something the church really struggled with, and so it wasn't deeply developed. Um, so actually, I'm getting a lot of this just from the text of Scripture, because there's actually quite a bit in the New Testament on this topic. Um, you can arrange the, the purpose of the ascension and session in four categories. It can be arranged under the headship of king. He ascends and sits as our king. He ascends and sits as our high priest. He ascends as our example. And he ascends as the first fruits of our race. Those are the four categories. And we're going to spend most of our time on the first two, especially the first one. First, Christ is installed as king over heaven and earth, and especially over God's people, the church. Now, what is a king? That's a notion that you know, we all have some idea of, but not a real good idea because we don't have any of those around. You know, what, what is a king? Well, in ancient times, a king fills several roles at once. He wasn't just a president. He, he wore a lot of hats. First of all, and this is often what made them to be kings, they defeat enemies. They defeat the enemies of the land that threaten the people. And this note of con the conquest of evil powers is very, very much present in the New Testament's presentation of Christ's ascension. We see this in several ways. First of all, um, his entrance into heaven itself, the Apostle Paul tells us, was in the manner of a Roman triumph. It would a triumph is. Right? Triumph, a triumph is not a victory. It's the celebration and parade that happens afterward. You see, when a, when a Roman general was victorious in war, he would come back to Rome and enter the city gates and parade through the streets in a procession showing off his victory. He would wear a laurel crown and a royal gilded garment, and he would ride in a chariot at the front of a procession making its way toward the emperor. Behind him would follow the victorious army, and behind them would be the captives of the defeated army in chains. And then would come the spoils of war, the riches that he had stripped from the enemy and was now bringing back to Rome as an offering to the Roman people. The streets would be lined with Roman citizens cheering the returning hero and receiving the gifts that he's giving out from those spoils of war. The book of Ephesians tells us that Christ, when he ascended, this is quoting a psalm, led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's a Roman triumph. In the book of Colossians, he says that Christ despoiled principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, leading them away in triumph. There's little question that Paul had this idea of a Roman triumph in his mind. The powers of the air, the powers of earth, and the powers under the earth, the entire demonic host, the whole array, was publicly humiliated in that event. Stripped of its arrogant boasting that just a few weeks earlier it had been making over the, the crucifixion of Christ. 
Hell had been defeated, and now, in the ascension, Christ makes an open display, a public show of that defeat. As a general approaching Rome, Christ approaches the gates of heaven. And this is something that our fathers love to do. They love to quote that psalm that says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Remember that psalm? Who is this that's coming? It's the king of glory that's entering, right? Well, for them, that was a psalm about the ascension. As Christ re-enters the gates of heaven... The angelic guards say, who is this? And they command the gates to lift up so the king of glory can enter. And you can imagine that the heavenly way must have been lined with adoring, cheering, bowing, and astonished angelic beings. The conquering victorious king who had defeated the enemy in the enemy's home turf has returned. That's the idea. Further, the defeat of enemies doesn't stop there. Because when he sits upon the throne at God's right hand, several texts tell us that it was for the express purpose of subduing his enemies to the uttermost. So he doesn't destroy them completely while in his first coming. He severely hampers them. He severely hamstrings them. He accomplishes a, a tremendous defeat. Um, but he doesn't destroy them. He, that's, that's something that takes longer. And so it says that he sits in that throne at God's right hand until all his enemies have been put under his feet. So right now, he is in the process of putting enemies under his feet. Those who oppose his reign, whether they are demonic or whether they are human, all such as will not have him to be their, their lord, their king, starting with the Jewish nation, which had rejected him, which is dismantled after a few decades, and then the Roman Empire, after three centuries, is defeated by the very religion that it persecuted. Christ claims a power greater than that of Caesar. Forces arrayed against the church in every century, in every generation, are pressed back by Christ's rule from that seat of glory. And the church somehow survives and even thrives. By the power of his very name, the very name of Jesus. This is something the church fathers reiterated quite a bit. That by that exalted name, demons have been subdued and driven out since the earliest days. Which is proof of his exaltation. They're scared of that name. And that still happens today. Sorcery, augury, open displays of demonic power disappeared for the most part from the civilized world wherever the name of Christ prevailed and the church was established. They, didn't, they weren't completely gone, but things went underground. Okay? There was a loss of power, a subduing in measure. Whole cultures that were shot through with open displays of evil that would shock us if we lived in ancient Rome. We would be shocked by some of the evil that we saw in, uh, openly. Those, those, those cultures were transformed. Now, they weren't transformed entirely. There's still a lot of, of evil in them, but they were transformed substantially, a whole lot better after the church became dominant than before. So the king, this is the king who defeats our enemies. Now, a king is also a sovereign, this is the second point, whose will we obey, right? And when Christ sits at God's right hand, the Bible tells us that he does so as one to whom all creatures owe allegiance and obedience. Everything in heaven and earth is subjected to him. You see, our race has been obeying the devil 
there is a will that we have been listening to and heeding, only it's the wrong one. We've been caught up in the kingdom of this earth, but now there is a new sovereign laying claim to the human race. Or rather, it's, it's our original and true sovereign. He is recalling our allegiance away from the devil and this present world to himself, to his will, so that we might march to his orders instead and obey his law and not the devil's. So he calls on our race to repudiate our service to the imposter that the world serves and to transfer our obedience, our loyalty, our fealty to him, the true king. Those who have done so are now a heavenly people, They are associated with that man in heaven that makes us the heavenly people. With a new homeland and a new king whose will we obey. Those who have not, those who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And by the way, that's the earliest Christian confession. That's the earliest creed. Jesus is Lord, which is basically saying everything I'm teaching you this morning is true. That really is where he is. And he really is doing what I'm telling you he's doing. Jesus is Lord. And those who refuse to acknowledge that, to accept his rule over them, are still earthly, still of this present age. And unless they repent, which God does very much wish them to do, the Bible says they are sons of wrath. And so we see that Christ's exaltation and session at God's right hand has divided the human race between those that acknowledge his rule and follow him and those that refuse to do so. Thirdly, a king is a helper and a provider. He's like a father figure who's providing for his children. And we've already mentioned that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men. Uh, Ephesians says he gave gifts in the forms of apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Everything the church needs and, and, and many more gifts in order to be edified and built up and cared for. Other scriptures tells us that he gives repentance as a gift to those who open themselves to it. He gives faith as a gift. He gives forgiveness as a gift. He has the authority and power to dish out forgiveness as he wills. It's a gift. He gives mercy. He gives power to those who turn to him in weakness, etc., etc. He is providing from his, for his church as the king who provides good things for his people, watching over us protecting us, and he even tenderly receives our souls to himself when we die. Whether that's here or in paradise where he is controlling, we don't know, but he's receiving our our souls to himself. He's caring and watching and giving meaning even to our deaths. The greatest gift, however, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Ever noticed or wondered why Jesus had to leave? He says in John, I have to leave in order for the Spirit to come. Why? There could be multiple answers to this. There probably are. I would suggest only now that the Spirit could only descend upon our race in that new and unique way through one of us. Through a man who has merited and received the fullness of the Spirit as a reward, not only for himself, because of course he already had the fullness of the Spirit for himself, but now with the power to share the Spirit with his people. A power that he receives when he is raised, ascended, and glorified. And we could not possibly be saved without the Holy Spirit that he received for us 
upon his ascension to the Father. Well, lastly, a king is a judge who rewards good and punishes evil. We separate our executive power and our legislative power and our judicial power, but in the ancient idea of a king, all three are one. The posture of sitting, it says Christ sat down. You know what that posture is? It's not a posture of resting. It's the posture of a judge. It's a judicial posture. He sits upon a throne of judgment, positioned in place for his second coming, when he will use the full exercise of that judicial power. And from that loftiest place, he sees everything. He witnesses every event. He sees even the secret motives of the heart, and nothing can escape his eye. None who do not now, while they can, flee to him for mercy, and he begs, and he's open, willing and wanting for them to do so. But none who refuse to do that can possibly hope to escape his judgment in the end. He will make sure that good is rewarded. And that evil is punished. That rights, excuse me, that wrongs are righted. And that justice is done finally. <coughs> right now, however, he's restraining the, the, the most part of this work of justice. This power is being held back. He's now watching. He's remembering what he sees. And out of mercy and patience, he is postponing this judgment for the last day. But even now, there are occasionally faint flickers of this judicial role. So the church has learned to say, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Because it is the church knows that her beloved Lord, her Savior, whom she loves so much, is right now seated as the divine judge. So whether it's conquering enemies or recalling us to the obedience to a new sovereign, or helping and providing for us, or judging good and evil amongst us, Christ's ascension and sitting down at God's right hand is clearly to be understood as his installment and enthronement as our king, without which we could not be saved. But it's not just as king that Christ is, is installed, it's also as high priest. This is the second major category, and you should be thinking the book of Hebrews, right? There's actually several chapters in the book of Hebrews, a huge chunk of text devoted to this very idea. That when Christ ascended, he ascended as a high priest ascending the steps of the temple. And then ascending up through the veil, the curtain, and into the most holy place, the holy of holies. Where he presents himself. He stands before the ancient of days presenting himself, his humanity that he had sacrificed and now is offering to God as an offering an acceptable sacrifice in the presence of the Father. He is both priest and victim. It was his own humanity that was sacrificed on the cross, but now as priest, he is offering himself that very humanity by his very presence in the presence of God, holding up that sacrifice before God's eyes, making atonement for his people. And there he stays, in the most holy place, always before the eyes of the Father. Every time some great evil would arouse God's wrath against the human race, you see this happening when the children of Israel rebel and God wants to blow them up. What does Moses do? He intercedes, right? Every time that same thing happens with the human race, the Father sees this great high priest in front of him, 
who is not only his son, but a member of the human race who pleased him and who made atonement for the rest of us, whose very presence at his right hand is ever working reconciliation between God and man, bringing peace and keeping peace between heaven and earth. And then he sits down. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us why he sat down as a high priest. I don't have to guess. This is right straight from the Bible. It's because the work was done. The sacrifice, his offering, was enough. Other priests stand as they offer sacrifices. That's because they've got to keep doing it. There's always a new sacrifice, a new lamb, a new calf, a new bull. Because it's never enough. But when Christ sits, it's because he has offered himself once for all. It is so sufficient, it never needs repeating. Also, priests stand because they take shifts. They come and they go. And they grow old and they die. And they need to be replaced. It's constant motion. But Christ lives forever. And so he has obtained an everlasting and unchanging priesthood. That means he can sit down. Forever installed immovably and unchangeably and permanently as our high priest. And there will never be another one. As our high priest, Jesus remains in the presence of God interceding. Intercession is part of what a priest does. He knows what it's like to be us. He's been where we are. He still has our nature with him and in him. So when he sees us in trouble, he can go to his father about it with real compassion. And he has sway with the father, believe me. This is a lawyer you want pleading your case. He's the son. He gets whatever he asks for. All right, so he is interceding for us. And lastly, a priest blesses people. That's part of a priestly function, to bless the people. Christ calls down the Father's blessing and favor. And this, by the way, is why we end our services with our priest blessing us. Our priest liturgically represents in himself or makes present amongst us liturgically our great high priest, whose blessing it really is. The Apostle Paul begins his letters time and time again with grace and peace to you. It's a blessing from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends several of his epistles with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This isn't just polite, formal religious language the way you start and end a letter. It's become that maybe, but that's not what it was when Paul wrote it. As our priest, Jesus does bless us. That's what priests do. He sends down upon us grace and peace, conveying to us the Father's blessing. When our priest stands before us, representing this one and only high priest, he calls forth this priestly blessing from Christ down upon his people. So Christ is seated seated in heaven not only as king, but also as high priest, who offers what high priests do, they offer, who intercedes, and who blesses. We couldn't be saved without any of this. Now very briefly, and I don't have time to expound it, so I can only just simply mention the last two things. And that is that his ascension is also an example. They say, well, how can that be an example? Like, we can't do the same thing. We can't ascend after his example, can we? The New Testament has a pronounced theme of endurance, of running the race, of fighting the good fight, 
of being crowned victorious at the end. Major theme in the New Testament. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He resisted the devil and remained faithful to God when it was most difficult for him to do that. When he had everything to gain by giving up and everything to lose by pressing forward and doing the righteous thing. But he did so anyway. Clinging to his faith that God would reward him in the end. That there would somehow, like Abraham, who's going to sacrifice Isaac, somehow God will make it right on the other side. There is joy on the other side of this suffering. The ascension and session of Christ tells us that this, this struggle is worth it. Sorrow does end in joy. Weeping does end in laughter. Obedience in this life can be tough. In fact, it can be excruciatingly difficult. Think of the martyrs. For them, obedience means the loss of their life. That's not fun. But look at Christ's example. See what he received on the other end. It's worth it. So by this means, he encourages the obedience and suffering of his people, teaching us not to be having our eyes on things here below, but on things above. Not at what we receive in this life, in this time of testing. It's not the time for receiving. But in the end, in the time of rewarding. So we must keep our eyes, as he did, on the prize, on the joy that is before us, knowing that as he was not disappointed, neither will we be. Lastly, and this is the most theologically pregnant idea, and I'm just going to drop it on you and bail. (laughs) So... Christ ascends into the highest heavens as the first fruits of our race. The human nature that was glorified and risen to the highest place is our nature. When we are united with him and mystically become one body, the glory that he has brought upon our nature in his own person, by degrees, becomes ours. He shares that divinized, glorified humanity by degrees, with us. While we never attain the degree of glory that is his, the fact of his human nature, our nature that he possesses, being swallowed up in the glory of deity, has set that same nature in us on a trajectory of glory and exaltation that we cannot now fathom. Further, when the gates of heaven opened for him to pass through, do you think they were opening for God? There's no gates that can shut out God. They were opening for him as a man. Mankind, renewed in him, enters into the holy of holies and into the highest heavens with Christ. He made a way into heaven for the rest of his race. Paradise was closed, not to God, but to man. Remember the angels and the flaming sword when Adam was cast out? Now the second Adam ascends and approaches those gates and paradise is reopened. To man, not to him only, but to all who share his nature, who are renewed in him, in this second and new humanity. And I could say so much more, uh, but we don't have time. I think we need to contemplate the ascension and particularly his session, his glory right now at the right hand of God more than we do. The apostle Paul tells us to think on these things. It's a command. Think about this. The Bible tells us, set our minds above where Christ is at God's right hand. Put your mind there, not here on things below. To think about Christ in the highest heavens 
We are to orient our life around that reality as the North Star that guides us. In many ways, you could say that the ascension and session at God's right hand is in fact the heart of the gospel, the good news. The crucified one is not defeated. He is risen, ascended, enthroned, and accomplishing our salvation right now. Amen. Amen. Now, before we break into our groups, and we only have 10 minutes.